I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, and welcome to episode 161 of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and if you're listening to this on the day that it's released, and if you celebrated Christmas yesterday, I hope you survived the hustle and the bustle of the day and got to enjoy time with your family and friends and loved ones. And I hope Santa Claus brought you just what you were hoping for. For today's episode, we're going to jump forward in time a few decades from the last two episodes, which both took place during World War I. This event wasn't just a one-day thing, though. It went on for 13 days. But I'm featuring a day right in the middle of it. I'm taking a headline from the Herald News out of Passaic, New Jersey. The date is October 22, 1962. It says, Big U.S. move against Cuba may be in works. Friends, this is the story of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Back in 1960, the country of Cuba made a deal with the Soviet Union. The Soviets promised that if war between Cuba and the United States ever happened, they would protect them with Soviet weapons. The U.S. fought back by placing trade embargoes on Cuba. But in July of 1962, Nikita Khrushchev, who was the Soviet premier at the time, decided to go ahead and start installing some ballistic missiles in Cuba. You know, just in case. The United States didn't like that. I mean... Cuba is really close to us. My husband and I drove down the overseas highway to Key West, Florida with one of our sons in November, and we made sure to take pictures by the sign that says 90 miles to Cuba. If missiles had been launched from Cuba back in 1962, they would have reached our borders in just minutes. Well, the U.S. sent their spy planes out, and in August... They reported that not only was there evidence of new military construction in jungle clearings, but there were also Soviet technicians on site working on them. Then on October 14th, another spy plane was able to confirm that a missile was indeed on a launch site, and it was aimed right at the United States. The U.S. didn't have very many choices. They could be the first to take action and launch their own invasion of Cuba, particularly with airstrikes targeted at those missiles. Or they could set up some sort of blockade around the island. Or they could try diplomacy. Ultimately, on today's episode, date of October 22, 1962, President Kennedy took to the airwaves and gave a speech on live TV. He told the country about the missiles and announced that he'd chosen to place a naval quarantine, which was pretty much a blockade, around Cuba, so that they wouldn't be able to receive any more shipments of missiles. What they had was all they would be getting, and if the Soviets tried to send anything else, the United States would take them. Tensions were extremely high, and people all over the United States were terrified that we were about to find ourselves in the middle of a nuclear war. They hurried to the grocery stores and bought all the food they could carry. They drove to the gas stations and filled up their cars and other containers with gasoline. If nuclear war came, it might be the last chance they could get those things. And it wasn't just Americans stocking up. 
People in West Berlin, Germany, rushed to the grocery stores to stock up too, because they feared the Soviets would cut off their supplies in retaliation. A war between the two superpowers would have far-reaching consequences. Ships, including destroyers, and airplanes, and troops, began arriving in Florida along with a lot of munitions. All leave was canceled, and servicemen were ordered to return to their ships and bases. All it would take was one press of a button, and the United States would be at war with the Soviets. The Cuban Missile Crisis went on for days, and neither side seemed willing to budge. At one point, Soviet ships approached the U.S. blockade, but they didn't try to force their way through. Then on October 27th, a reconnaissance plane from the U.S. was shot down while flying over Cuba. The pilot was a 35-year-old man named Rudolf Anderson, and thankfully, he is considered the only casualty of the entire Cuban Missile Crisis. The next day, on October 28th, a deal was reached. Nikita Khrushchev promised that they wouldn't send any more missiles to the country, and they'd take the ones already in Cuba back to the Soviet Union. In return, the United States promised that we would never invade Cuba. Fidel Castro wasn't happy that he no longer had Soviet weapons, but it was a relief that a deadly war was held off. Now, since I'd never liked to spend a long time on the maneuvers and intricate details of war, I think it's time to move on and see what else was happening around the country and world the day the U.S. found out there were missiles in Cuba. On October 22, 1962, newspapers were filled with article after article about Cuba and the Soviet Union. There was a lot to sort through and explain. Then there was the Jimmy Hoffa trial that was currently going on. That got a lot of newspaper real estate, too. But I've already extensively covered Jimmy Hoffa in other episodes, so don't worry, I'm skipping it today. There was also news of a shipwreck in Norway that had a pretty high death toll. But, since last week's episode was about the sinking of the Lusitania, I didn't want to do another shipwreck story so soon either. Instead, I'm going to tell you about something that had been unfolding for a few years. I'm taking a headline from the Tonkawa News out of Tonkawa, Oklahoma. All the headline says is, What's new at the library? The article talked about a book that had just been released, giving all the details of the plane crash of the Lady Be Good, and the article briefly told the story of the Lady Be Good. As soon as that article compared the plane crash to the Mary Celeste ghost ship, which was the subject of my first novel, and the subject of episode 48 of this podcast, I knew I had to cover it. It sounded mysterious, and I'm going to tell you the story but I'll start at the beginning. This story starts nearly 20 years earlier than the Cuban Missile Crisis. It started in the North African country of Libya. At the time, Libya was occupied by the British, and the United States was allowed to build Air Force bases there. One of those bases would remain in Libya all the way until 1970, and at one point it was the biggest military base outside the U.S., Anyway, on April 4th, 1943, 
a squadron of 25 B-24D airplanes took off from their base in Solich, Libya. They had a mission. Fly across the Mediterranean Sea from Libya and attack different facilities in the harbor up in Naples, Italy. After they dropped their bombs on the targets, they would turn around and return to the base. It should have been an ordinary mission, but that's not what happened. As you can probably imagine, it's not very easy to get 25 airplanes all into the air and into formation at the same time. So, the planes would take off a few at a time and then fly faster to catch up to the others. The Lady Be Good was one of the very last of the 25 to take off that day. And they had a lot of ground to make up in order to reach the formation of planes. However, Libya is in the Sahara Desert, the biggest desert in the world. And sometimes sandstorms can suddenly kick up and they're not something you want to mess with. It was bad enough to be on the ground during a sandstorm, but to be in the air was much worse. That day, as the squadron of planes was making their way to Italy, a sandstorm suddenly appeared. The pilots had to fight against high winds, and the visibility was really bad. Some of the pilots decided it wasn't worth it, and they aborted the mission and returned to the base. The crew of the Lady Be Good pushed on, fighting against the storm. But eventually, right before they got to Naples, Italy, they decided to abandon their mission and head back across the sea to Libya. They never did catch up with the formation, which had broken apart by that point anyway, and they were flying solo across the sea. One by one, the planes made it back to the base and landed. 21, 22, 23, 24, but that was it. The 25th plane, the Lady Be Good, didn't come. Those on the ground waited and waited and waited. The Lady Be Good had a pilot, a co-pilot, a navigator, a bombardier, a flight engineer, a radio operator, and three gunners on board. Then, after a lot of waiting, the Lady Be Good contacted their base. The pilot told them that their direction finder wasn't working correctly, and they needed help with guidance to make it back to base. But before they could get the help they needed, the plane lost contact with the base and was never heard from again. Of course, search and rescue teams were sent out to search for the plane in case she landed and had survivors on board. The search covered a lot of area, but no matter how hard they tried, they couldn't find the missing plane and her crew. So, they came to the conclusion that made the most sense at the time. The Lady Be Good must have crashed into the Mediterranean Sea, and she would probably never be found. As sad as it was, the Lady Be Good was just one of many planes that disappeared during World War II. Exactly two years ago, I shared another plane crash story from World War II. The story of the famous Glenn Miller. To this day, his plane has never been found. The Lady Be Good story probably would have been forgotten if it wasn't for what happened in 1958. In November of that year, a group of British geologists who work for an oil company were flying over Libya, and they noticed that there was a plane crash in the desert below them. They could tell a couple of things by looking at it. First, they knew it wasn't a new crash site, 
and that the plane had been in the desert for a long time. And second, it was an American plane. The geologists contacted Wheelis Air Force Base and gave them the coordinates of the plane. Wheelis checked their records and found nothing. They didn't have any records of a plane going down in the desert. Since nobody could figure out what plane it was, they kind of just ignored it. Over the next few months, that same team of geologists would find themselves flying over the wreckage multiple times, and they always wondered about it, and wondered about the fates of those who had been aboard it when it crashed. Finally, in March of 1959, the next year, the geologists decided to put a team together to inspect the crash themselves. The team was able to find some paperwork, including maintenance records, and some clothing on board, among other things. The clothing was a great clue because it was military clothing, and military clothing has the wearer's name on it. The team sent all of this information they collected over to their friends at Wheelis Air Force Base, and they were shocked when they found out that it was the Lady Be Good. Everyone had always thought she crashed into the Mediterranean, but instead she had crashed more than 400 miles inland from Benghazi and overshot the Air Force Base they were trying to find in the storm, without working navigation equipment. The Air Force Base put together an organized search at this point, and spent the entire summer out in the desert at the crash site doing a very thorough investigation. They found a lot of things near the plane, like flight boots, and plane parts, and equipment. And inside the plane, they found thermoses of half-drunk coffee, and sticks of gum, and chocolate bars, all perfectly intact, preserved in the dry desert air. The parachutes were all gone, meaning the crew had been able to bail out. The investigators determined that there was no way the men could have survived more than two days in the harsh conditions of the desert, without food and water, and they focused their search for remains on that distance. Then they found some sort of arrow markers that they believed the crew would use to mark their path. Again, it was encouraging, but it didn't result in any finds. Finally, at the end of the summer, the investigators decided it was no longer worth staying in the harsh conditions, looking for bodies that had probably been buried in the blowing sands for many years at that point. They packed everything up and went back to the base. But the story of the Lady Be Good isn't quite over yet. Six months later, once again, British oil workers in the area stumbled upon something shocking out in the Sahara Desert. Human remains. They found five bodies, including those of the pilot and co-pilot and a bunch of their personal items. The bodies were 75 miles from the crash site. The co-pilot, Robert Toner, had a diary with him and some of the pages were able to be salvaged. That diary would end up giving a lot of information about what happened on that fateful day back in 1943. When the crew couldn't find the base and they were running out of fuel, they decided it was time to bail out and they jumped out of the airplane altogether. According to Robert's diary, all of them made it to the ground with their parachutes and nobody was seriously hurt. That is, all of them except John Waravka, the bombardier. They searched for him in the dark, 
but decided to wait for Morning to do a better search because they couldn't find him. When Morning came, there was still no sign of John. The group knew they didn't have a choice, and they couldn't wait any longer. They had to go for help. They had a few rations on them, and a little water in their canteens, but it wasn't much. They decided that they would allow themselves to drink one capful of the water a day, but no more, since they had no idea how long it would take them to find help. Remember, this is the Sahara Desert. The days were hot and very dry, and the nights were really cold, as in barely above the freezing mark. The men struggle to sleep and get any kind of rest. Robert makes entries into his diary for nine straight days, chronicling their journey and telling how they were growing weaker and weaker, but were not going to give up hope. He told how they prayed and how they hoped that those prayers would be answered. One of the things that seemed to be affecting them the most was their eyes. One by one, they seemed to lose their eyesight and then they lost their ability to walk. He wrote how they wished to die. And then on April 9th, he wrote, Shelley, R.I.P. One of the gunners had passed away. That same day, he wrote that Moore had continued on without them, looking for help on his own, since the others couldn't walk. And finally, on Monday, April 12th, nine days after the crash, Robert made his final entry. It was only one line. It said, No help yet. Very cold night. Well, since five of the bodies had been found, the military started searching again. And a couple of months later, they managed to find the body of Shelley, who was mentioned before. He was 21 miles away from the others. Then they found the body of the flight engineer. He was 26 miles farther than Shelley. They looked and looked, but still couldn't find the other two men. Once again, the search was called off. Fast forward to August of 1960, and guess what? The same oil company located the body of a seventh crew member. That time, it was John Waravka, the man that never met up with the rest of the crew after they parachuted out of the plane the night of the crash. The only body that was still missing was Sergeant Vernon Moores, the man that Robert had written about, the man who had left the group when they were too weak to carry on. More than 60 years have passed since the last body was found, and still, there has been no sign of Sergeant Moore. Maybe he only made it a short distance, or maybe he miraculously made it a really long way and everybody's looking in the wrong place. Unless the desert sands decide to shift again, his burial site will most likely always remain a mystery. In 1959, Pat Frank, a journalist, visited the site and told his story in the Buffalo News. He said, I have just returned from that eerie place where nothing lives or has lived for centuries, where the temperatures climb to 130 degrees or higher every day, where in the past 16 years it has rained only once. There is no sound there, not even the whisper of blown sand.
Okay, for the second additional history story from October 22nd, 1962, I'm taking a story from the Oakland Tribune out of California. As you can tell by this headline, it's going to be a sad story. It says, Boy Drowns as Death Trap Drains. Ten days earlier, on Columbus Day, a massive storm struck the West Coast, stretching all the way from the Pacific Northwest and up into Canada. Some called it the Big Blow. Some called it the Columbus Day Storm. But it seems that most, including the Oakland Tribune, called it Typhoon Frida. The storm was massive, and at some points during its run, it sustained winds of over 100 miles per hour. That's a very rare thing for that area of the world. In fact, the wind was so strong that from Northern California and up through Washington and Oregon, over 11 billion board feet of timber was blown down in the storm in just 12 hours. That's more timber than the area would normally harvest in an entire year. Well, the storm also brought a lot of rain with it, and the San Francisco and Oakland area received record-setting rainfall, with over four and a half inches just in one day. Over the course of the whole storm, the Bay Area got about seven inches of rain. The World Series was going on at the time, and it had to be delayed. And in case you're wondering, the San Francisco Giants were playing the New York Yankees that year. So, where does all that water go? The answer is, whatever spot is lowest, right? All the rain was running into pools and making sudden lakes and ponds form in areas that were usually dry. To make matters worse, a freeway in the Oakland area was being constructed, and that meant there was a lot of area that was dug up, making even more ponds and lakes. Since there was nowhere for the water to go, it stayed where it pooled, and people were really worried for the safety of their children. They thought the pools all through the neighborhoods were a bit too tempting for the kids. And they were right. Even with increased patrols from the police, six-year-old Patrick Hayslip managed to find the water without being seen. I'm not sure if the boy was given permission to go outside and play, or if he slipped away without permission or notice from his parents. This was the 60s, and kids were allowed to wander around at a lot younger age than they are now. Either way, Patrick couldn't resist the pull of a particularly large pond and walked down the street to one of them. It was so big that the freeway construction crew had brought massive pumps in from Los Angeles to try to drain it. At first, right after the storm originally hit, they were running the pumps around the clock, but people in the neighborhoods complained that they were too noisy. So they started running them just during the day and then turning them off during the night. Even after days of pumping, there was still a lot to get out. Anyway, when Patrick didn't return to his home, his parents started searching the neighborhood. Everyone was out looking for him, but the little boy couldn't be found anywhere. With growing unease, people started pointing fingers at the rain pond. They started searching the water, and they called in some skin divers to look for the little boy. Their worry increased when they found some boards at the edge of the pond that they believe the little boy had hooked together to make some sort of a makeshift raft. Then, a man who actually worked as an artist for the Oakland Tribune 
and helped with search and rescue on the side, found little Patrick. He had drowned in 12 feet of water. The poor family, who had only recently moved to Oakland from Pocatello, Idaho, took little Patrick back to Idaho to be buried. Dozens of people were killed on the west coast of the continent during Typhoon Frida. And sadly, according to that same article, Patrick Hayslip was the fourth child to die just in the Bay Area because of the storm. For my third and final additional history story of the day, I'm taking a headline from the Philadelphia News out of Pennsylvania on October 22nd, 1962. I almost made it through an entire episode without telling a murder story. But then I came across this one, and I had to tell it because the initial articles about it, while police were still doing their investigations, proved that it was absolutely bizarre. I had to keep reading and researching to find out what really happened. This headline says, Cop Brass to Map Next Murder Move. Yeah, that headline tells us absolutely nothing, so I'll give you a hint. This is the murder of a woman named Claire Kramer. I'm just going to say right here, though, that there were a lot of details in this case that were reported in newspaper articles, and I can't possibly share them all in one additional history story. So once again, I'm going to give you the watered-down version. Ten or eleven days earlier, Claire Kramer's seven-year-old daughter, Michelle, walked home from school during the lunch hour. I'm sure it was something she did every day. Except that day, the front door was locked, and she couldn't get in. Her mother wouldn't answer the door either. Not sure what to do, Michelle walked to a few different neighbor homes to see if her mother happened to be visiting them. But nobody had seen her. One kind neighbor fed Michelle some lunch and sent her back to school. Then about 4 p.m., Claire's 15-year-old daughter, who was a sophomore at the nearby high school, arrived home for the day. The front door was still locked. But this daughter knew something her little sister didn't. There was a key under the mat on the front porch. She grabbed it and let herself into her home. The Kramers lived in a split-level home, and that daughter, Barbara, had to walk up about five stairs to get to the living room. When she got up there, she saw her mother lying face down on the couch. Laundry was spread out near her, as if Claire had just been sorting and folding it. Barbara tried to shake her, but her mother didn't move. Then, the poor girl finally realized what she was looking at. There was blood all over the couch and all over the floor next to it. Barbara ran out of the house, screaming, and into the street. The police were called, and the doctor was called for Barbara, who was going into shock. The police entered the home and immediately started an investigation. There was no doubt that they were dealing with a murder. When they first started their investigation, they thought it was probably a burglary gone wrong. But the more they looked around, the more they started to question that theory. The home had three bedrooms and two bathrooms on the upper floor, and all of the rooms had been completely ransacked. Not a single drawer was left unopened. Clothes were pulled off hangers in the closets, and items were torn up in every room. The killer had even gone into the laundry room 
pulled clean clothes out of the dryer and thrown them all over. But if it was a burglar that did it, they somehow managed to miss $1,400 sitting right inside one of those open drawers. It didn't make sense to the police. Then there was the actual murder of Claire. The killer had used a hatchet. And sorry for the graphic description, but they literally hacked her to death. There were at least six blows that resulted in deep cuts on her face and head. Usually when that happens, the killer knows the person, and they're acting on revenge or hatred. There's usually a motive for the murder. Claire's husband, Morris Kramer, soon found out about what happened to his wife, and the man went into absolute hysterics. He couldn't think of anyone who would harm his wife. She was a 42-year-old housewife. How does someone like that make such a horrible enemy? The Kramer home was surrounded by dozens of cops and reporters and people who just wanted to get a look. One neighbor lady saw the crowds and started serving coffee and food to all the officers and reporters because they'd been there so long, and she worried that they were needing. But they didn't want to miss a single clue. Well, fast forward just a couple of days, and the police made a big announcement. They had eight different suspects, including two teenagers who were accused of burglarizing the Kramer home on multiple occasions. Those teenage boys were friends with the daughter, Barbara. The burglaries had been going on for months. One time, the boys got away with $11,000. One time, they got $8,000. And there were multiple other burglaries where the criminal or criminals got away with more than $1,000. The teenagers were between 16 years old and 19 years old. Now, the really bizarre part about all of this is that Morris Kramer, Claire's husband, insisted he knew nothing about the burglaries and that there was no way they'd had $30,000 in their home. Maybe five hundred, but definitely not thirty grand. Morris ran a grocery store, and since Claire didn't work, He had no idea how or where she would have gotten all of that money. And even more interesting was the fact that she had never reported any of those burglaries to the police. Keep in mind that $30,000 in 1962 would be nearly $300,000 in today's money. It just didn't make sense. Oh, and the police discovered that when the couple lived in a different home in South Philadelphia, Someone had stolen $28,000 from them. Then, as Morris Kramer talked, even more interesting information about him and his dead wife came out. Apparently, the couple was from Poland. And at least Morris still spoke with a thick accent. They'd been married for 22 years and then moved to the United States in 1948. While in Poland, they served together in the Polish underground but they managed to avoid being captured by the Nazis. Talk about a crazy background. When they got to the U.S., they worked many long hours to make a go of their business. Morris couldn't believe that they had worked so hard and sacrificed so much, only for Claire to be brutally murdered when things were finally looking up for them. I don't know about you, but after reading this much of the case... I was seriously starting to suspect that Claire had been a lot more than a housewife and was mixed up in something pretty big. Okay, let's get back to those teenage suspects that were arrested. 
One of them was 17-year-old Larry Silverman, and he admitted that he had stolen money from a hiding place in a wall of the Kramer home and shared it with some friends. The question was, how did he know about the hiding place in the first place? Had Barbara discovered it and told him? Had he happened upon it himself? Had Claire Kramer been mixed up in something along with Larry? With every new discovery in the case, there were more and more questions that needed to be answered. Then, on October 24th, newspapers reported another new development in the case. And again, the new information was so vague that it only left people confused and with more questions than ever. The police announced that they had discovered men's clothing that had been hand-washed in some sort of detergent that was strong enough to hide any trace of blood. The detergent was so strong, it also faded the color of the clothing. But they knew who the clothing belonged to, but they weren't saying who. My question is, if the detergent washed away traces of blood, how did the police know it had even been there in the first place? How did they know it wasn't just how that person did their laundry? I'm sure the police knew more details, but it was a weird thing to release to the press. Friends, I read many articles about this murder. They were printed in newspapers nearly every day for weeks. Then, finally, on November 2nd, a headline from the Philadelphia News said, Two charged in Kramer killing, third hunted. The opening line says, The Claire Kramer murder case is solved. Three weeks and one day after the 42-year-old housewife was found hacked to death in her Winfield Heights home, police today have signed confessions from two of her three alleged killers. Interestingly enough, the 17-year-old who admitted to burglarizing the Kramer home on multiple occasions was not one of the accused. But the other boy arrested with him, the teen who shared in the money, was. The admitted killers were 19-year-old Rodney Langness and 24-year-old Leonard Engler. Both of those men said that a third man, the one who actually killed Claire, was 22-year-old Lonnie Johnson, and he was on the run. Nobody knew where he'd gone. The men confessed that it was a tire iron and lug nut remover that had been the weapon, and not a hatchet like cops originally suspected. The weapon was found tossed down a storm drain. On the day of the murder, the three men decided to go and burglarize the home again. Rodney told them it was always a good place to find cash. Lonnie took the weapon just to be prepared for anything. Claire Kramer walked in on the burglary in progress, and Lonnie Johnson decided to beat her to death rather than run away. The other two men watched in horror and didn't know what to do. When they left the home, Rodney wanted to call an ambulance for her, but the others said no. The very next day, police found Lonnie Johnson. He had tried to commit suicide by taking sleeping pills, but it didn't work, and he was arrested and taken to jail like the other two. The worst part about this case is that I never did figure out where Claire Kramer was getting all of her money and why she was hiding it in the walls of her home. My guess is that maybe Morris really did know about it, but didn't want to admit it to the police. Apparently, all the youth in the neighborhood knew about it. Either way, the next year, all three men were sentenced to life behind bars. 
Leonard Engler only ended up serving eight years of that sentence before being paroled. His life of crime wasn't over yet, though. He was arrested at least eight other times for various crimes before he himself was murdered in 1982. Police found his body in the trunk of a car after people complained about the smell coming from it. In 1984, a Rodney Lingus out of Pennsylvania was arrested again and charged with another murder. I can only guess that it was the same Rodney from this story. And I'm not sure whatever happened to Lonnie Johnson. Today's advertisement is for all of my crafty listeners. There was once a time when it was cheaper to make your own clothing than to buy it. Sadly, those times are long gone, and fabric prices are really high. But in 1962, the Bastrop Daily Enterprise out of Bastrop, Louisiana, reported that pennies had 3,000 different printed fabrics to choose from. And you could come in, pick your favorites, and get three yards for a dollar. That is a really good deal. Even if inflation is taken into consideration, it's still a really good deal. Friends, thanks for listening today as we talked about the Cuban Missile Crisis and the other things going on around the world on the same day. If you want to reach out to me, you can do so by joining the Additional History Headlines You Probably Miss Facebook group, or by emailing me at additionalhistory at gmail.com. Then, come back here next Monday, and I'll have a brand new episode for you. I'll tell you all about the time an engineering project failed, and the catastrophic damage it caused. And, of course, I'll have some fun additional history stories for you. Talk to you later. <laughs>